0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul Axton, and I'm here with uh, Jonathan Matt Welch, and today we're going to talk about an interplay of modernity, nominalism, secularism, and its impact upon experiential reality that is a part of a theological understanding. Maybe I should say that as you're coming at this from an Eastern Orthodox understanding, I think that any of us can appreciate that part of what we're describing, it has to do then with the split between East and West. The idea is that this tradition or this understanding that develops in its own peculiar fashion in the West and perhaps particular places and particular peoples in in will manifest itself differently that there is an eastern understanding that is of a very different tradition a very different understanding that may have its own failures but it's not the failures that we're describing here
1: that's an interesting point i think it's true at least for a long time the east seems not to participate in this discussion that ends up giving us Protestantism, Bible studies as a discipline as opposed to systematic theology, historical theology, see the fracturing of things, and then even later on, philosophy being its own discipline. And then I think all of that's kind of a product of nominalism and leads to a certain kind of theological discourse that doesn't happen in the East. I think it would also be unfair to say that in the West, the idea of a participatory ontology was completely lost. So I, I think it's probably true that in much of our theological discourse, it was lost, and we turned away, and we started doing theology in new ways. But at the level of practice in various churches, I, I don't think that's all, always the case. And then you have oddities. So Anglicanism is you know, very much Protestant for some people and very much Catholic for others. But what's interesting, in, even in a place like the 39 Articles, which are written by Cranmer during the beginning stages of the English Reformation. This is before the Elizabethan settlement. Most people read a lot of these as very Reformed. He reads them in a Catholic light, but the Catholic light he uses is still Tridentine, which, you know, maybe for some is still too Reformed. But I noticed, as Matt was talking, something interesting in the first few articles, that when they talk about of the Word, or Son of God, which was made very man, it is only Jesus who is equated with Word. Actually, Word and Son of God go together, and then the Incarnation with Jesus. And so he's described in rather orthodox terms here. When they get to talking about Scripture, they don't do the thing that happens that we were just talking about. In one sense, the Word isn't fully equated or made synonymous with Scripture, and the scriptures aren't reduced to something that could be studied, but rather are left in, uh, I don't know, you might call like a liturgical context for worship. So that the way scripture is defined is, Holy scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Well, uh, even though I think that these articles have more Reformed tendencies, that's not a very Reformed doctrine of Scripture, such as to say, well, what, what the Scriptures are are a revelation of who God is, which is first revealed to us as the Word, who is Jesus. So that it's not to lessen the authority of Scripture, but it's not to make the Protestant move and equate authority with the Bible, such that authority there is still that God is being revealed to us, So that scripture then is a revelation of the church unto salvation. And of course, then they've got their more, So, I mean, the Protestant language is that when they say anything that's not there, that can't be proved from scripture, can't be made binding. What they're trying to say is if you want to be Catholic and do all that stuff that you only can get from the tradition, that's fine, but nobody's going to have to. But that's an interesting move in Anglicanism. And this gets preserved in some forms of Lutheranism too such that the context where most Christians are meeting God is not a didactic context, which is what you definitely get in Calvinism and all the Reformed churches, but it still is through liturgy, it's through participation in the Eucharist, chiefly, um, it's through participation in all the sacraments, even those same articles will allow for two dominical sacraments and perhaps five more that the church has clearly taught in the West, and then they don't even draw a line there, which actually is more similar to Eastern practice. So I think there are places in the West where practice is much better than the way theologians are talking about these things. I think Reformed theology specifically, because it takes such a didactic turn, what I mean by that is... In Reformed theology, there is hardly any emphasis on the sacraments or on a liturgical form of worship, but rather it's all placed on teaching, doctrine, and what can be known. That's, I mean, for obvious reasons, going to be more nominalist than a church that says, well, the primary way that you're going to meet God is through participation in worship, even if you still have nominalist theologians in those traditions. Uh, Now, Turning to the East, what's interesting, and I can't run all this down, but uh, the Russian Orthodox Church in the 19th century gets in conversation through a few theologians and thinkers with the West. So that you get Soloviev, Vladimir Soloviev. I believe. He he almost recapitulates the entire Enlightenment in his thought. Uh, Not that he's an Enlightenment thinker, but I mean, it's the first time somebody from within the Eastern Orthodox Churches it's actually not the first time, but it's the first time that most people reference, does a serious engagement with Western philosophical thought. And then there's a tradition after Slovia that's harder to trace. My point here would be that if Eastern Orthodoxy has been on a different trajectory and has not encountered nominalism and has not participated in that conversation, I don't know that it's because there's anything inherent to Eastern Orthodoxy that would be a type of shield from that discussion or that would immediately be able to name nominalism as a structure of thought that they would want to oppose. And I think that in as much as moving from the late 19th century into the 20th century in Russia, especially the church does not there have the capacity or has not taught people to be able to withstand the ideas uh, that are, are very Western in terms of the secular humanism that gets adopted by the Soviet Union, basically. I don't think that there's anything theologically there that is able to ward off those views. So one might wonder if it's just because there, there's no longer this common conversation because of language barriers or geographical barriers or, or whatever else it might be i don't think anybody gets a pass in
2: other words yeah i guess i don't mean to overly romanticize or anything like that but my point was is that nominalism and volunteerism and things like this seem to arise in the west with the dawn of modernity and you know and with the reformation all these things are sort of happening simultaneously or or almost simultaneously and so it's not that um, orthodoxy is sort of insulated uh, from all that but we would also want to say though um, on the other side of the reformation that human participation or cooperation or synergy or however you want to put it is required precisely because of theosis you know that we are uh joining ourselves or rather the you know into the divine life or the in and through the eucharist or these other you know means that god is you know our lives and and his are being joined together so that the gap you know we would call that gap that we could say we're alienation from god but that in christ through the holy spirit that we that that gap is being closed and what that closure is called is theosis
1: it's not an actual gap, right? Like that's the whole point of not being a nominalist. <laughs> right. So it, it's to say that it's. I mean, I think that's the Holy Spirit is revealing the presence of God to us, and we call that salvation because it also reveals that no, we don't have life. We don't have lives of our own or in and of ourselves as we might like to think.
0: But maybe the, so. It is
1: union with God.
0: The practical outworking of what and and understand we so we were talking about a construct. And so let me give you this is the series of things that Matt was arriving at. You have sola scriptura, it becomes an entity with its own internal integrity. You have sola fide, that faith alone becomes Integral or unto itself—that is, that it's in some way cut off from practice. What's wrong with that, or how we might we might reverse that and say, yeah. how is that then, or is that a byproduct of the same development that we're describing?
1: Well, I think what would be most interesting about that question is, of course, sola scriptura meant something very different to Luther than the way it gets taken up in the Reformed Church. I'm always a little suspicious that in the United States, we're just so much more familiar with Reformed Protestantism or Calvinist Protestantism that we don't, most of us have never actually encountered any other form of Protestantism, even to the extent that um, denominations that in Europe wouldn't be as Calvinist are much more so here because that's just the way things went. So I, I yeah, I think so that's that's got to be a part of this conversation. But when you think about uh, sola scriptura and sola fide, you know, both of those things are things that the Roman Catholic Church has always rejected and I don't think that gets them off the hook for being nominalist or participating in the creation of the secular that would be my issue with taking those things as guideposts for this conversation as I think they're actually a lot more limited. They're just, they loom so large in the American theological imagination because we're so much, we're just you know, degenerate here. I don't know what you, you say. <laughs> it's just, we have been shaped by Calvinism, I think, as a nation, maybe more so than other places where there are still Protestants. Like So take the Church of England as an example. In the initial stages of the Reformation, the Church of England is very much um, straddling in between Lutheranism and a more Reformed Calvinist thought. And yet, Henry VIII, until his death, is moving closer and closer toward back towards the traditional uh, Roman Catholic, well, wouldn't be Roman Catholic, really just medieval Catholic mindset. And you still have all of these medieval Catholic bishops running around. And then, of course, the whole thing gets returned to Catholicism under the papal jurisdiction under Queen Mary. And then Outside of that, they return back to trying to navigate between Lutheranism and Calvinism, but they find they no longer have any Lutherans in their midst, and so they might as well just be Calvinist. The problem is, and this is the the interesting part here, England apparently isn't a great place to do Calvinism. They've got all these cathedrals, and they've got all these relics of medieval, even the ones that, you know, I don't mean actual relics, but... The things that did not get destroyed already loomed so large in people's imagination that by the next generation, you have the flowering of Caroline spirituality, the Caroline divines. And they're so Catholic, in fact, that it leads to a civil war. So, uh, and nobody had thought they were, the via media was at that point between Catholic thought, medieval Catholic thought, and this other thing known as Protestantism that's already become a monolithic Option. When we think about what the options are, I think it's always a little bit more complicated than uh, sola scripture and sola fide. That's Protestantism and that's nominalism because it's already, nominalism is already entangled in both uh, what's going to become Roman Catholic thought, it was already there in late medieval Catholic thought, and um, you have then various degrees of this in the different Protestant breakaway churches. What unfolds from there is the emphases, right? So that in Anglicanism you have more than any other Western church I think this, uh, not more so than Roman Catholicism, and any other non-Roman Catholic church after the Reformation, an emphasis on liturgy, you know, maybe to their detriment, but it's not a confessional church. So it's very hard then to enforce anything like sola scripture or sola fide, because you don't need recourse to those things. You don't, there is no confession by which people are doing theology. In Lutheranism, you do have a confessional church, and so then you can enshrine some of these tendencies that are nominalistic And in the Reformed confessions, they're even more stringent. What I think Matt uh, may be hitting on it, correct me if I'm wrong, but what happens with those two doctrines is sort of a reification of the Bible as such, so that the Bible ceases to function as a part of the tradition, or ceases to function as this larger thing, and becomes much more um, almost like what the Quran is to Islam. Protestants become a people of the book, and Christians had never been a people of the book. Even in the New Testament scriptures, as references to tradition. There's references to a bunch of things. We don't know what's being referenced because Christianity was always so much bigger than the scriptures. The scriptures are pointing to and revealing and making present to us Jesus in a way that we encounter Jesus as the risen Lord, but we also encounter Jesus in the Eucharist. More so, I mean, and, you know, much traditional Christian thought that presence is even somehow more more special than in reading the scriptures. So I, I think that there's just a lot in play there. Yeah, and I don't mean to,
2: I, I, you know, I certainly don't mean to just uh, try to pin all the problems on a couple, you know, sola scriptura, you know, doctrines or mm-hmm. whatever. What what I'm really trying to get at and describe and uh, investigate is more of a, of a dynamic that's pervasive throughout a sort of uh, one, you know, form uh, maybe of thought. Paul talked about this a while ago. I can't remember if it was in a sermon or if he wrote on it, but, you know, to me, the ultimate sort of nominalism would be to empty Jesus of any real content or significance, right? To name, so the category or the person or the word of God of, of Jesus with nominalism, they're saying, well, you know, we're just describing something that you can't really get to. The, the
1: Well, are they the, I mean... Uh... I mean, think about Luther's own words here, though. He wants to do a theology of the cross. He wants to say that God is... The, the place where you see God revealed is Jesus' death. That You know, he comes close to even saying that God has died on the cross. I don't think that's what nominalism is doing exactly. I think it is turning towards an imminent frame, and it's ceasing to see the way that our lives in total participate in truth, beauty, and goodness. And then this, uh, you know, this ontology that has us participating in the being of god that nobody's talking like that anymore what we have to remember is like idealism as such can still be nominalistic it's not just making flat or always po- it's not a kantian gap that's the definition of nominalism this is oh well we you know there's just some things we can't know so we can't talk about that i think that is a product of nominalism but that's not really what luther's saying about God. I think the problem with what Luther's saying, as a nominalist about God, is that when God is revealed to us in Christ, God is still hidden to us in the sense that there's a deus absconditus that we don't participate in. And I don't even know how, I mean, I'm hoping that's still accurate to Luther. I mean, and this is the problem that oftentimes we think about this whole conversation in the terms of what can be known. It's not really what's going on. It's more of, should we talk about our our being in such is that it's ordered in a certain way that participates in God as a principle and final end. So that a, a, another casualty of nominalism is that causality gets reduced to efficient causality, which is to say cause and effect. So that we think in terms of who God is and how God relates to humanity and the world in terms of cause and effect such that God must will something for us to see God show up or be present. The conversation turns away from thinking about God as the source of love that we are always participating in, regardless of how much we understand or know that. People used to think about a cosmos instead of a universe. So a cosmos has integrity because God is constantly sustaining it, and all things are interwoven and participate in each other. Uh, when you start talking about a universe, you're talking about them Uh, something that in and of itself is infinite. (laughs) And that's the problem with Newtonian physics, right? So that you get this idea that time, uh, there's a law of time. There's these absolute laws to the universe and that the universe itself is infinite. Well, you can't actually think that and be a Christian, but pe- that wasn't obvious to people for some reason. But nobody in the middle the Middle Ages would have thought that way. They all thought in terms of a cosmos that so everything was structured to God because everything was constantly sourced by God. And so that when you would ask who God is, well, uh, it's like that passage out of Colossians. You know, God is this, the cre- the source and sustainer of all things. But well, God is a God of love because it's only love that generates. Uh, this free donation of being that we all participate in. It's only uh, by God's wisdom that all things are linked together and are moving such that we participate more fully in God and will eventually achieve union with God. It's not as linear as to, of course, they believed in efficient causality too, but it's not as linear as to reduce everything to efficient causality and say, well, at the beginning of time stands a God who created and he either before the fall damned and saved all people or after the fall decided, which doesn't really make sense in, in this uh, uh, logically. But anyway, or after the fall decided then to damn or save whom he will and that all of this has been decided from the beginning. So what Bart tries to do from within that is say, well, actually, it's Jesus that's been decided from the beginning. But then that would, of course, be consonant with God's own love and the fact that the Trinity is... Uh, a relation of persons, and that those relations themselves
2: would be defined by love. from a properly orthodox perspective, there is no space in which God doesn't occupy or something like this. I mean that would be like the space of death with a modern sensibilities there really there is like there's sort of this imagined space where maybe God doesn't sort of occupy That's we, right. would,
0: we would reify the imminent, we would reify the object, the thing We yes. can even create an imminent frame in our understanding of Christ, that we can so objectify who Christ is, a realm apart, an object for adoration rather than imitation. Uh, The particular group he was referring to is the National Prayer Breakfast, or what is sometimes called the family. They use the name Jesus all the time. They pray. I mean, prayer is a huge thing for them, but it's as a kind of a meta-signifier or, you know, that, that Jesus is just an empty frame that you can fill with whatever you want. There's no particular content. And so there's a strange thing that happens that I think it just happens again and again. I think that one way of describing it is nominalism. Maybe that just confuses, but because it is the human tendency, that is that we empty that frame, we empty it of its real meaning, and we fill it. And I'm afraid that that's what's Mm -hmm. done when we do not integrate the person and work of Christ Mm -hmm. with scripture, with tradition, with the church, Mm -hmm. uh, with human experience. But we could go through and say that the same thing about scripture, that, you know, we've done the same thing, that we can empty that, you know, here are the words that have fallen from heaven. But what they mean are what I, in other words, my own interpretive understanding is the correct one. I don't need to tie it into the tradition. I don't need to look at Mm -hmm. the history of interpretation. It's just given to me in the same way that it appears in the book. Faith, too, can function in that same way that you can't attach any particular element to it because it's something that it is almost like the cogito. It's the the thing that thinks. It's the eternal regress. What is faith in uh, a particular, you know, in a Calvinist understanding? Well, it's something that God does and we don't do. It's devoid of works. Well, is thought a work?
2: It's like it doesn't have any real content. Right. And that's what I was getting you know, that's what I was getting at. And obviously I don't have I don't have a grasp of sort of the intricacies of nominalism, clearly. But but I guess that's what I meant, Paul. So thank you for saving me on that because I, that's what I was trying to get at is that well, if you can empty just the name or the category of Christ of any real content and then to use the name of Jesus to sanction violence or to sanction oppression. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: So
2: what that's how I was getting at the mm-hmm. sort of connection between nominalism is sort of a a empty you know kind of signifier that's like well there's nothing being signified you know there is no beautiful as such it's just gotcha gotcha and so that's where i was getting at for sort of like just practical purposes it's like but because to me that's the scariest part of all this and just purely kind of uh, existential terms is that well once you empty Jesus, Christ, of any real sort of content, then ethics sort of goes out the window because you're like, well, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, sure, Jesus says those things and uses those words and those categories about love. And, you know, Jesus is very specific there is what he means by love. It's like, but once we chuck all that, because there's not a real participatory ontology in the kingdom of God mm-hmm. or in the life of Jesus because we're just going to make it whatever it's an ideal, it's a name, it's a whatever, it's an, ob- it's an object, it's a something else then that's where the, dump like, it's almost like the demonic is
0: up. We, Matt, Matt and I were, maybe we, we were flying too high. Uh, but, you know, once you understand that sola scriptura, sola fide, have been twisted in such a manner and made a kind of perverse entity unto themselves. And once you recognize that, oh, you can recognize also then that that sola can be extended to any number of things, and in describing it, you're describing the same perversity. Sola erotica, those who turn to the sensual, to the erotic, as a kind of end in itself. Here is the heights of human spirituality and achievement. You could pursue that and understand that for many people, that is definitive of their desires, of their longings, of of who they are.
2: It's pornographic, you know.
0: It's pornography,
2: yeah. which 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 by definition is sort of an empty. Uh, mm-hmm. So I wonder uh,
1: who is it, Matt. So I know I was reading Maximus the Confessor, but is it Gregory of Nyssa or Gregory Nazianzus who first talks about the nomic and the natural will?
2: I, I mean, I'm familiar with that through Maximus.
1: That may help. Nomic will is basically deliberative choice. The idea that I can will one thing versus another. And we think of that as being freedom, right? The natural will is the will that is, whether we realize it or not, maybe unwittingly, we are willing one thing, which is ultimately God, because God is our principle and final end. Where nominalism comes in, it's like a nominalist would just cut off the gnomic will from the natural will and say the gnomic will is the only one there is. And basically, that's how God's will works as well. That's good. And what, what that means, I guess, for us, uh, so if, if you were to say, well, I liked the way you were saying this, you're kind of emptying any of these signs out of their, their real meaning, which, of course, would be uh, the way they participate in these universal concepts, ultimately the way all things participate in God's being and goodness. And this, this is always, I think, kind of uh, to Paul's work, if you said, well, the nomic will is all we have, and that's all we are, so freedom, or what it means to be human, is just to actuate that capacity that we have to be able to choose between two things. Well, that ultimately, I think, could be explained in psychoanalytic terms, right? such that I either choose to do, I mean, this is Pauline terms, I guess, you know, I, I choose to do that which I think is right, but I'm not actually able to do that or something that choice becomes fundamental. or there then is uh, introduced a difference in between the eye that would choose what is good and the eye that fails to do it, or even uh, I mean, I think the beauty of the Nomic will, is that you can see this in the most perverse way, where you would just choose to do what is evil, Uh, and yet that is not in any way uh, taken away. That doesn't say that you have less freedom. If you were to say the gnomic will is primary, that's the only will that we have, such that what it means to be human, as Paul was saying, it's to take anything and just say, well, I'm going to choose this wholeheartedly. Uh, So whether it's the erotic or, or scripture, but it's this idea of the way we participate is in and through our choice. i do I do think that's what's happening, essentially, that and the way nominalism has affected us is we no longer think of ourselves as ultimately beings of the natural will. that is what is fundamental about us is our participation in God and growing in being love, goodness, truth. All of that means that we're growing in union with God, and that the nomic will itself would is just a product of the fall that what it means to be free is to choose God, single-mindedly. It's not to be able to make choices in between two things.
0: I think that you're hitting it. What you can describe as sin, what you've just described as two sorts of will, that there is a willing that is definitive of sin, isn't it ironic that Calvin's picture of faith would separate it completely from practice? Mm Mm-hmm. But I would suggest, again, that's not simply Calvinism.
1: That's right. That's, that's, yes.
0: that's just what we do, exactly. that we would always separate, either formally or informally, faith and practice, yep. mind and body, thought and will, theory and application. Yep. That is, that what we're describing in modernity, you know, this is the supposedly the grand discovery of Heidegger. He wants to bring all of this together. Well, all that he's discovered is is what was already there in his Jesuit theological studies, I think, is the rediscovery of the Pauline notion of alienation. So uh, what I was building up to is what I think what you're describing, is that this separation of things, this separation of, can be in terms of God's eternality and time. I think that this is taken up in a series of doctrines, that we imagine that things in and of themselves have an integrity and existence. It may be hell. Oh, well, hell, that's that's a, a realm apart from God, enduring continually as a realm apart biblically that is a conceptual impossibility we can do the same thing though i think with other realms we can do it in a positive sense with any kind of creaturely or creation or christ or in other words to imagine that any of these things have an integrity existence eternality quality of existence apart from god Mm -hmm. is already to have misunderstood them And I'm afraid the key doctrines, then, are developed from that hmm. failure of thought.
1: So uh, I'll ask a simpler question. Why do we go to church? What are some answers you've heard, uh, the worst of which, to meet girls? (laughs) (laughs) To meet meet girls. That's
0: one I remember well, yeah. Uh,
1: Uh, Maybe uh, some better bad answers would be something like, well, to be a good person, or Because I don't want to go to hell. I think if you answer that question in any other way than because it's true, you're doing what you were just describing, Paul. So it could be doctrinally, I don't want to go to hell. So we've imagined that there's this set of options out there that have some kind of uh, self-grounding, right? So that we would go to church so that perhaps we can somehow create a right relationship that gets us out of this place. Week because we have somehow thought who we are and our desire for relationships is an end in and of itself. Basically, anytime you can say something is an end in and of itself, we've taken a finite thing. I think this is what you were just describing. We've taken a finite thing and we've placed it as a possible infinite end for all things. And that's meaning we've displaced God. But if you say, well, we go to church because it's true, In some way, we've realized even though we're never going to comprehend the fullness of who God is at church, we're never going to encounter the fullness of who God is at church, we recognize that we're participating in something that is true and thereby we participate in God, even God's presence. Uh, I think those are two ways of thinking about this, uh, th- of thinking about what we're talking about. So that when you reify a doctrine or make the Bible, actually, I think that would be a good way of thinking about it. Like sola scripture, a soul, all the, what those do is they just make scripture an ideology, right? And That's Which it, is to yeah. say it weaponizes scripture, but it also reifies scripture. Uh, makes it some sort of absolute, but also then makes it sort of this end for what we're doing that is other than God. And that's where things get wrong-headed. And then I think, yes, those are both symptoms, signs, or even, you know, this is leading causes just are doing this of the secular in the sense that the secular always leads to then our own isolation, which is, of course, a product of sinfulness that we, we don't relate to each other properly. But all of these things that we would take to be good, those have to be goods ordered to this final good, which is God. And that's why I think you know we all we tend to think in terms of, like universalism there is no space that god isn't both present and just uh, you know that's the tricky thing about like the infernalist position right there some of them are willing to say god is all always well, you why i think that, that we're trying to
2: describe through? whether in philosophical terms or whatever um that we have this tendency towards like a disintegration or a partitioning between whatever you can run it down so many different ways mm-hmm. you say, you know, the sacred and the secular or faith and works we really do imagine that there's a space where God doesn't properly belong or that he doesn't occupy. So, you know, in Romans seven, we call it the ego or, you know, there's, there's various ways to talk about what that might look like or sin or death or the gap or the absence or however we want to talk about it. But to, to my mind, what's what really, you know, we should be talking about, is the unification of the the word of God in Jesus, you know, in Jesus and, and in the scriptures or in faith and works or in the ethics of Jesus and the embodied sort of obedience to, to his commands. And but our tendency is to do the exact opposite thing and that is to sort of compartmentalize our our sexuality or our, our economics or our politics or our whatever and to imagine that there's a space again there that God doesn't command lordship over in some way, right? Either philosophically or just existentially or doctrinally so to my mind though what's actually happening though is that there really is a cooperation of faith and works that god does in fact share his glory it's not just sole deo gloria that god really does share his He glorifies the saints i understand that that luther you know and these guys meant something to be different but it was a reaction an extreme reaction though to roman catholicism where it's like no actually god is in fact glorifying his creation that it's, it's Christ alone through whom we're saved, but actually it's also through the church. In other words, we don't have to disintegrate this thing and partition God off as if he were just one more name, one more empty signifiers among so many others that Jesus himself becomes a word by which we sanction the worst sorts of torture and violence and oppression of the, of the you know, foreigner and of the poor and of, because that to me, that's the scariest part of all this. Again, this can all float off into like an academic discussion that doesn't have too much to do with anything. But once you can use Jesus to sanction torture, or once you can use Jesus to sanction, you know, wars of aggression, and, and we're doing it because we're a Christian nation, or we do, we import some of this stuff into our eschatology and say that, well, that's why we have to sort of support, you know, uh, Israel or whatever. And we, you know, we aid, that we aid each other in our sort of mutual uh, oppression of, and we do it in the name of Christ. What I'm getting at is that whether that's properly nominalism or not, that the dynamic seems to be, to function in the same way. And that is, is that we're caught, we're, we're saying oh we're christians or you know all oh, that we're ethical or whatever words you want to put in there but that what we're really doing is we're substituting evil for good or good for evil so you have like a, a truly a real a really existing thing like good but we're doing evil in the name of the good so to me it's like the grossest sort of unless i've totally misunderstood nominalism that it seems to me like maybe like kind of like the grossest violation of uh the goodness of god to uh, take that which is good, like the name of the precious name of Christ, and to do evil in the name of the good. To me, these are these are very confusing times. You know, to whether East or West, if we're inhabiting that sort of. Uh, again, I take it back to what I said earlier. It's like, could you really have existed in the first or second or maybe even third century as a Christian in name only? Well, that just wouldn't have made sense. What makes you a Christian is that you embody, you incarnate. You know that That's what it means to be a Christian, is that Christ continues to be incarnate in and through the church. So that you're not just Christian in name only. This was Kierkegaard's, of course, problem, right? And, and uh, with, with his context, that while you're just, the way that you become a Christian is that you're just born and it's stamped on your baptismal certificate and you're, you know, that it's the same thing as your state ID or whatever. And so these things, I think, have kind of like a disastrous um, effect on women and children end up like with missing limbs and people end up starving to death and
0: you know, terrible atrocities are committed in the name of the good. I think that we're saturated in a logic we have to do this evil to accomplish this good. And that what the marker, I think, is to in some way get beyond that. There was a Netflix special on a tribe of people in Ethiopia. And they're still there. There's about, they're about 600,000 strong that practice human sacrifice to this day. It's illegal in Ethiopia, and they've tried to stop it, but they can't stop it. And because we all know that when you have a child, if their teeth come out at the top of their mouth, well, this is a sign that they're evil. And so, of course, we'll have to kill them. One who's born out of wedlock, In other words, they have these things, they all know it, they've all practiced it. Twins and twins are kinda a very interesting one because that's just nearly universal. Obviously, you'll have to kill the twins because this is a sign of the devil himself. Everybody knows this. And so too do we offer our own sons and daughters to be sacrificed.
2: Imagining that it would be good. That's what you know in our conversation earlier, it's like, well what better thing than could you do than to you know send your your son or your daughter off to die you know in a war of aggression it's like well on one level from sort of a sane perspective anybody could say well that's not good but you're saying that it is good you're confused in other words like and again uh, we can float off but to me this it, we're, we're trying to make it like a concrete thing where it's like we we actually really end up doing evil and calling it good that is to my mind, is that sort of the failure that nominalism, at least in some way, illustrates or participates in or whatever. But that the real problem is, though, is that we would hand our children over to death, imagining that we're doing a good thing, that we're actually participating in doing violence and the worst sort of evil, deceived about what we're doing and thinking that we're doing good. We've confused the worst We've made the sort of worst error that you could possibly make. It's the logic that St. Paul says that, you know, let us do evil so that good may come. Well, that's about the worst sort of mistake that you can ever make. But I think that your point and what Jonathan's point is, is, yeah, but that's just what we do all the time apart apart from Christ, apart from the tradition in the church and the constraints of the spirit.
0: So that I think you can equate, what is taking place, whether we call it nominalism, obviously we wouldn't want to simply equate it with either Protestant or Roman Catholicism, but there are forms of each. But there's always the same sign that comes with the demonic, and that is the sign of willing to deal in death, that all of these realms then are willing to to do evil that good may abound. There is a departure between faith and practice, between ethics and theory. In other words, those realms torn apart allow for the space that is the idolatrous space in which a realm is reified, made absolute, and we imagine that it exists apart from God.
2: And I don't have any illusions about this. You know, we can, you know, we can say, oh, Calvin or Luther or whatever. But the fact is, is that there's Eastern Orthodox priests who are blessing missiles. You know what I mean? So, so what you're getting at is that this thing is pervasive. It's endemic, precisely because it's part of the fallen human condition. That it's uh, that it's intrinsic to how sin functions and what sin is and it sin really does manifest itself in a sort of a failure of epistemology or a failure of not only knowing but of being but in the context of our conversation that to believe a lie to confuse the good with evil or you know or life with death in other words like you really can't get much more of a serious epistemological error right than to confuse the light with the darkness or the good with the evil, with your child dying versus your child living, with either doing violence to the other, to the neighbor or not, or doing him good. You know, these are the ultimate sorts of, so, but once you make that mistake and you say, well, actually we have to torture this guy. Yes, I'm a Christian, but you understand that even as a Christian, I have to torture this guy so that some greater good will come. I have to do, We uh, yes, torture is evil. I understand that it's bad to break people's bones and fillet them alive or whatever it takes to get an answer out of them. You know what I mean? But we have to do it. You know, you talk about this all the time with the guys on death row, that, that if you talk to the guys on death row and say, well, why'd you do it? They say, well, I had to do it. They had to come." In other words, justice had to be served. Good, the good had to be served. And in order for the good to be served, something terrible, terrible had to happen. I, you know, I had to kill her. You know, I had to kill the baby too. It's the way that it had to be. We just, we had to bomb. it. We had to drop the atomic bomb to end the war. We could easily kind of get wrapped around the axle. You know, what is the the, the problem? Is it nominalism? Is it volunteerism? Is it, or whatever, these different sorts of, uh, you know, philosophical schools of thought or whatever. But I think that what you're saying is, is that, no, the problem is, really is sin and death. And to imagine that those things really do have a reality. Or maybe even a goodness, right? Because isn't that what you're really saying? You're saying that, well, sin and evil really isn't all that sinful and really all that evil. If it can be used for good, then in fact, in some way, it actually has a good attached to it. And to my mind, this is connected to the discussions about transcendentals. Because there really is an actual, real participation in the good or in the evil, or there just isn't. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like, I appreciate, I appreciate- We solved it. We solved it. I appreciate
0: you, Matt and John. Uh, Theology, the books can be closed. If you'll go to our Patreon page. The mystery is solved. You can support Forging Plowshares Ministry. You can also go to the donate button at Forging Plowshares and donate. Great conversation. You're welcome.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.